If you'd please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. I had a good chuckle yesterday, remembering a few weeks ago, and I thought that I might could cover this chapter with a single sermon with four points. That was silly. I quickly realized that each point needed its own sermon, and so this is our fourth and final time looking at this great chapter in Genesis. We looked first at the nature of this test of God testing Abraham and why he did that and why he tests us the way that he does. We looked secondly at this great obedience and how it was only possible through faith. And if you were with us Thursday evening, and many of you were, we looked at what all this points us to, the, the, the symbolism, the significance here. And I don't know if you remember or not the awkward title I gave to what the fourth point, the fourth sermon would be, Substitute Joy. Now, as I was intending that to be purposefully vague with possibility of meanings. And I'll go ahead and warn you at the outset, this is a bit of an unusual sermon. It certainly is for me anyway. Because ordinarily a sermon is tied pretty closely to what is explicitly stated in the text. It's both explanation of what is there and persuasion about what to do with it. But this morning I'm sharing with you what I believe to be in this passage implicitly. I'm going to preach to you a sermon about joy in a passage that doesn't mention joy. At least the word joy isn't here, but after having sat with this thing for four weeks now, with this passage, with this chapter, four weeks. You know, sometimes, oftentimes I think, that's what we're really supposed to do with Scripture. Just sit with it for a while. Not hurry and read it and check it off and turn the page and go to the next chapter. This is not a a microwave It's not going to give you what you want in a matter of minutes. It's a crock pot, right? It takes all day long sometimes. And the end result is wonderful. But if your approach to Scripture is more like, all right, here's my field manual, here's my basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, And you open it up and you're like, what are my marching orders? And all right, off I go. Well, I'm afraid you're missing out on some some pretty beautiful things, some pretty important things. We might need multiple interactions with the same passage. Maybe that's why the psalmist said God's word was his meditation all the day. I think that joy, without a doubt, is here in this passage, even though the word is not. It's important that we see it. It's important that we consider it, that we meditate upon it, because we need that same joy in our lives. We need it in our worship. We're going to focus this morning on just the first half of the chapter, 14 verses. Stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray again for the help that we need. Oh, Spirit, would you come in power? Would you indeed, as has been prayed already, open blind eyes? Would you unstop deaf ears? Would you cause the ears that have heard this a hundred times but never believed it or trusted it? to hear it today as if for the first time? Would you cause the ears that have heard this and trusted this already to hear it and trust it afresh? Would you cause ears and hearts who've heard this before and have become bored with it to hear it today and rejoice as if for the first time? Would you exalt the Son in the process of this? Would you bring great glory to yourself and good to your people? We ask in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Please be seated. Substitute joy. Now, I don't mean by that something that takes the place of joy, like a substitute teacher takes the place of the regular teacher. No, I mean joy in the substitute. Again, not explicitly stated in this chapter, but I would argue it's here implicitly. I would argue that it is reasonable to infer and deduce the joy 
that is here. Now, what is at least closer to being explicitly stated, though technically these words don't appear either, would be the grief, the anguish, the pain that Abraham goes through because of this very severe test. This test of his faith, of his obedience. And and we covered that at some length in the first sermon. None of us can fully imagine what Abraham was thinking and feeling on those three very long and difficult days of this trial. None of us knows the pain of having to banish and disown one son and then be told to take the life of the other. The only son that you have left. None of us knows what it's like to be visited by God multiple times having amazing promises made to him that depend on this miraculously born son and then to be told to snuff out his life and the promises along with him. One thing that I read early on in my study of this chapter and that I kept going back to was how Matthew Henry described this. And I didn't put it up on the screen, because I just want you to to hear it. Maybe if you're the type that you would close your eyes as you heard it, if it would help you to put yourself there, then, then do that. It is necessary that a sacrifice be bound. The great sacrifice, which in the fullness of time was to be offered up, must be bound and therefore so must Isaac. But with what heart could tender Abraham tie those guiltless hands? Hands which had often been lifted up to ask to be picked up. Lifted up to ask his father's blessing. Stretched out to embrace his father and were now the more tightly bound with the cords of love and duty. However, it must be done. Having bound him, he lays him upon the altar and his hand upon the head of his sacrifice. And now, we may suppose, with floods of tears, he gives and takes the final farewell of a parting kiss. Perhaps he takes another for Sarah from her dying son. This being done, he resolutely forgets the emotions of a father and puts on the awful gravity of a sacrificer. With a fixed heart and an eye lifted up to heaven, he takes the knife and stretches out his hand to give a fatal cut to Isaac's throat. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. And wonder, O earth, here is an act of faith and obedience which deserves to be a spectacle to God, angels, and men. Abraham's darling, Sarah's laughter, the church's hope, the heir of promise lies ready to bleed and die by his own father's hand, who never shrinks at the doing of it. Can you think of something in your own life that has brought a tremendous sense of joy? 
especially joy if it has come to you on the other side of some difficult situation, some trial, some test. Have you thought about it? Have you identified it? I remember the day. I remember the place, the, the room that, that we were in our townhouse in Birmingham when we found out Shay was pregnant with Judah. Finally, after waiting so long, so many months that had turned into years, joy washed over both of us. That was a trial. It was a testing of our faith. I remember vividly the chair I was sitting in, in our living room, out on Partridge Road. I remember one night when my phone rang and it was Sam Lambrick, as it often is. But this time he was calling to tell me that I was the search committee's choice to be pastor here. And the joy washed over. The relief that came on the other side, that that was a test. Admittedly, it pales in comparison to what Abraham went through, but it was a test of our faith. It was a trial. But the joy, the relief that washed over in that moment is, was palpable. It's unforgettable. What experience of joy do you remember like that so vividly? What trial did it come on the other side of? Now imagine Abraham here when smack dab in the middle of this severe test, a voice comes from heaven and says, Stop! Don't do it! I kind of wonder if in that moment, was he confused? Was he even annoyed, maybe? What now? Here I am, I've steeled my resolve, I'm getting ready to do this thing that I don't want to do, and you're interrupting me, what now? But then he lifted up his eyes. Friends, can you, can you possibly try here with me? Let's try to put ourselves in his shoes. Let's try to see this through his eyes. With those eyes of his, they're filled with stinging, bitter tears of grief. And they look up and they catch the first glimpse of that ram and they realize what it means. Can you feel in your own bodies what he must have felt? How he probably didn't even realize that every muscle in his body had become so tense from the stress and the anxiety from the adrenaline. And he sees the ram and he realizes it's a substitute for his son. And like a wave washing over his body, 
every muscle that had been rigid relaxes. And his heart's so filled, he thinks it might explode because of joy. I know he experienced joy in that moment, even though the word joy is nowhere to be found in this text. He experienced that moment joy in the substitute, and it was life-changing for Abraham. In that moment, he caught a glimpse of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We talked about this Thursday night. It's kind of crazy. 2,000 years in advance, he gets a glimpse of Jesus. He knows what's going to go down in the gospel. He saw the ram and he got a glimpse of gospel beauty and glory. Jesus tells us, as John records in John 8, 56, that Abraham saw Jesus' day. He saw it and rejoiced. He saw it and was glad. It's got to be this moment right here. This moment when he looked up his eyes and he saw the substitute. Y'all... Joy ought to be no less life-changing for us. Joy in the substitute ought to be no less life-changing for us. Let Let me make this important connection. I propose to you that Abraham's joy was an intense joy like he'd never known. Not even the joy when he found out Sarah was finally pregnant with Isaac. That joy must have paled in comparison to this joy. This joy must have pegged the meter. It was off the charts. Why? This joy is great because the danger was so great. This joy was immense because the need was so immense. Abraham was seconds away from doing it. Going through with it, the knife was in his hand. He'd raised it up to get the thrust necessary to bring it back down. Friends, in your mind's eye, can you see a holy and a righteous God angry with you and full of wrath, offended by your sin and rebellion with a knife raised, ready to execute justice and punishment. Can you see that? Now, I imagine there's someone hearing me say that, and you bristle at that. Maybe you even rail against that. There's no way God could be like that. I could never believe in such a God. Well, friends, we don't get to worship the God of our own imagining. We don't get to create a God that we wish was. We have to deal with the one who is. The self-revealed, uncreated one, and it is true because of our sin and rebellion, Every single one of us is in great danger, grave danger. And friends, it is realizing the greatness and the reality of that danger 
that is directly proportional to the resulting joy. Joy in the substitute who rescues us from that danger. Something else that Matthew Henry said about this. He said, the more imminent the danger is, and the nearer to be put in execution, the more wonderful and welcome the deliverance. Friend, if you are not filled with a deep, deep sense of real joy, perhaps the reason is you've underestimated, you've underrealized the greatness of the danger that you face apart from Christ, your substitute. Because I don't know how you experience a rescue like that from such real and imminent danger and not have a joy that matches in intensity. Your very life has been spared because of your substitute, because he died in your place. Right? We sang of it earlier, such beautiful lyrics. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, just like Abraham looked up and he caught his first glimpse of that ram. Upward we look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. So I kept thinking about this. I kept chewing on it. I was thinking about other places in Scripture that speak to this kind of joy. There really are multiple layers of and reasons for this joy. And so I've already mentioned this first one. This this first reason is, is this avoiding death that we deserve. Our substitute dying in our place. So that's one layer. That's one reason for tremendous joy. But there's another angle that we can look at here. Another reason, another layer for joy. In another sense, we already are dead. Scripture speaks of us like that too. Of us being dead in our transgressions and in our sins. Dead as in spiritually unresponsive. No pulse. Annie, are you okay? No, we are not okay. We don't seek God. We we don't even naturally see our own need. We don't even see the danger because we're dead. And so in order to see that, we have to be given new life. We have to be brought back from the dead before we can see our need or, or understand that rescue's been provided. That's another layer. That's another reason for tremendous joy We've been brought back to life. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can that not give us amazing joy? 
at being given new life, amazing joy at being promised another resurrection, right? So, so one death that we don't have to die, one resurrection, if you know the Lord Jesus, you've already experienced another resurrection that is promised, not just spiritually, but physically. When these old dilapidated bodies wear out and finally give out, one day we will live again. That's reason for tremendous rejoicing, for great, great joy in our substitute who defeated death, who promises that if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. One death avoided, two resurrections. That ought to have an impact on your joy, friends. What impact ought that to have on our worship. They were going to worship that day. And Isaac, even as a young lad, had an awareness of the substitute. He was focused on the substitute. He wasn't yet realizing that he was the substitute. But he, was, he said, we've got the other ingredients here. We've got fire. We've got a knife. We've got wood. Where's the lamb? Do you come into worship with a focus on your substitute? Do you come into worship with a focus on the lamb who was slain? Is there a deep and intense joy in our midst when we gather for worship? One of the other passages that I went to this week as I marinated and meditated on this was where there was another father who experienced great joy over the life of his son. It's Luke 15. It's the prodigal son. And the father, at the return of his son, he likens it to a resurrection. Do you remember that? Remember what he said? He said, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then what happened? He threw a party. He said, we need to celebrate. In his great joy, there was great celebration. Would you say that our worship resembles a celebration? Or something else? In our worship, are we loving God with all of our hearts? Or just with all of our minds? Remember, the call is to love him. Heart heart is the first thing that he lists. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I am not talking about emotion for emotion's sake. But neither do I think that it's okay that we check our emotions at the door when we come in here. Y'all, we get fired up about a lot of things in our lives. (laughs) We are passionate about so much, right? College football. Food, 
sex, politics. There are things that really get our blood boiling. But I think sometimes when it comes to worship, we walk through those doors and a switch flips. And that passion is nowhere to be found. We feel like maybe we're supposed to walk through the doors and it's supposed to be all decorum and austerity. I fear we're like David's wife who chastised David when in his great joy at the ark being brought back he danced before the Lord. And she said, how very undignified of you. Now, I realize that it is just as possible to have a different switch that flips. And you walk in and it's instant emotion. Instant excitement without any substance behind it. And if you know me, you know that's not what I'm talking about at all either. I'm a a pretty reserved person. But I've been wrestling with this lately. And And I don't know that we are really worshiping in spirit and in truth if the joy that that truth brings about can't really be detected anywhere in the room. It's just something I've been wrestling with. Maybe you will wrestle with me about that. I want to finish this morning by asking an important question, though. What makes this substitute joy real? What makes joy in the substitute really mine and really yours? How do I know that what I'm experiencing, that what I'm counting on, isn't just emotion? Abraham got to experience the incredible joy of the substitute by faith. He would have never known this joy if he had not by faith obeyed God's command and gone up the mountain and gotten to the very brink of sacrificing his son. And we saw last week that the only reason that he could do that, the only reason he could go as far as he went, was by faith. He was trusting that God was going to work this thing out somehow, some way, even though he had no solution in sight himself. He did it by faith. This joy in the substitute became his personally by faith. What about us? Y'all, it is possible, it is very possible, it's prevalent even, to have an intellectual knowledge of the substitute and not know the substitute. And therefore to not know the joy that knowing the substitute brings. And so it's the same for us. It only happens by faith. We place our faith, we place our trust in Christ, our substitute. But funny thing, though, you need to know this. 
funny thing to know about our substitute, he's rather exclusive. He's rather demanding. He refuses to share the stage with anyone. He insists on being our solitary hope. He won't be one hope of many. He won't let us hedge our bets and trust in multiple things at once. We can't place our faith in him and also try to be really good, just in case. He will be all or he will be nothing for us. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Would you do that today? Would you venture wholly? Would you put all your eggs in his basket? Would you realize the depth of your danger, the intensity of your need? Would you cling to him as your substitute? And then would you respond to him with the joy that that clinging naturally brings a joy of the same degree and intensity to match the danger and the need that you've been rescued from. Oh God, we don't want emotion for emotion's sake. But we do want to love you with all of our hearts. We do want to celebrate as if we were lost and now we've been found. As if we were dead and we've been raised to life. As if we've been promised that one day after these old bodies wear out, we'll be raised with Jesus forever in glory. Oh, Spirit, would you grant faith that we might believe would you grant hearts that are flooded